On Sunday, I was mourning the fact that there was so little interesting news for my weekly roundup. So, I didn't do one. I mean, how much fun can you have with an oncoming plague and an ongoing impeachment? But then a superstar and eight other people died in a helicopter accident, and it all became clear. And no, before you go there, I don't think Trump caused the virus to try and change the subject, and then when that failed, I don't think he instructed Mike Pompeo to quote-unquote take out Kobe Bryant. What became clear was that, even though the news wasn't funny, it was worth talking about it. So what I want to talk about, what I want to start with today, is the power of expectation. This week, the Wall Street Journal produced this doozy of a quote. Diagnoses of depression have been rising in the U.S. for decades, in part because Americans have become more willing to seek treatment. The national suicide rate jumped 39% between 2000 and 2017, the most recent year for which the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has released data. Okay, depression diagnoses rise because the rates of people seeking diagnoses rise. That makes sense, I get it. But suicide rates shouldn't rise for that reason. Unless, perhaps, diagnosis and treatment are actually leading to an increase in suicides. People like to blame the internet for the rise in suicides. They like to blame social media. But suicide rates in Israel, a highly connected country, have fallen significantly in the same time period. So I want to go back to the professional question. Is there a possibility that our professional, scientific processes of raising children and treating mental illness have actually made things worse? Bear with me. Let's summarize the basic modern theory as, with more love, acceptance, and approval of others as they are, they will achieve happiness. In other words, we support their self-actualization, and then they can flourish. This sounds great, right? Who would think that hate, rejection, disapproval, or suppression could possibly lead to good outcomes? But I don't think it is so great. See, I think we're missing the boat entirely. First off, happiness is a side effect. It's like love or honor. If you aim for it, you're probably not going to get it. It's when you're trying to achieve something else that you are most likely to achieve it. Second, we have a tendency to overvalue that which we can measure. We take those measurements and then expand them into grand pronouncements and strategies. Voila! We have a scientific way of raising happy, well-adjusted children that actually produces miserable, poorly-adjusted children. Children on mind-altering drugs. Naturally, we blame it all on not going far enough and just keep pushing the envelope. It's a lot like socialism in Venezuela. Food is good and important. So we set the prices so people can afford food. Then when there are shortages because the producers won't produce food at those prices, we blame the greedy capitalists and seize their assets. When there are more shortages, we extend the price controls and seize more assets. After all, food is good. Before long, you haven't achieved food security. You just have a very successful national weight loss program. Reuters reported the average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds in body weight in 2017. Going back to depression, even as suicide rates rise, we keep pushing the same ideas. Because, well, happiness and acceptance are good. Economics doesn't run in a straight line, as we can see in Venezuela. And human emotions really don't run in a straight line. The third thing is, is that we tend to forget the impact of measurement in and of itself. One of the classic challenges of quantum mechanics is that the very act of measurement can change what you're measuring. I think the same thing applies to people. If you focus on self-actualization as a road to happiness, you'll achieve neither. Why? Because the very act of trying to measure you makes you change. And it can result in a pretty nihilistic realization. There isn't much you to self-actualize. 
we're actually pretty flexible creatures. We are far more stably defined by things outside of ourselves. Even in areas as seemingly fundamental as sexual identity, men in prisons and on ships have shown remarkable flexibility. Of course, not all people are flexible on all things. There's a spectrum. Why are we so flexible? I think the core to our ability to be flexible is our ability to internalize ideas and expectations. We can see one kind of flexibility long before we get to something as squishy as emotion. You can give somebody a sugar pill but tell them that it will cure whatever, and that sugar pill will often have a powerful effect. It's the placebo effect. Likewise, you can tell somebody they're being poisoned by some imaginary contagion and they will experience the symptoms. That's called a nocebo. But that's just physical illness. When it comes to mental and learning issues, I think the effect is even stronger. I believe, without any scientific evidence, that if you assign a syndrome to people who have a few related attributes of that syndrome, the syndrome will become stronger and they will internalize the remaining symptoms. Why? Well, the nocebo effect is part of it. But there's another kind of flexibility that's also part of it. We don't only react to our own expectations for ourselves. We react to others' expectations of us. People like to fit in, and so often they become what others expect of them. There was a study done a number of years ago. They sent out door-to-door volunteer pollsters with a script and a series of questions. They were accompanied by monitors to be sure they followed the script precisely. They told one group of volunteers what they expected the answers to the questions to be. They weren't to change the script or the questions. They just had an expectation that they were to keep to themselves. The control group had no expectation. When the results came back, those who were told what to expect returned with the expected answers. The control group, which had no expectation, but the same questions, did not. People react to expectation, even unspoken expectations. You can see it in other places. If you read the beginning of Ayan Hirsi Ali's autobiography, you'll see a description of three brothers from whom the tribes of Somalia are descended. The people in the tribes actually take on the attributes of their brothers, not because their genetic impact is so strong after 500 years, but because their social impact has survived after all these centuries. Expectations form people from class behavior in England to tribal behavior in Africa to national behavior in Asia. Various groups of Americans tend to fit into the boxes others assign to them. There's a spectrum, of course. Some things really are fixed, and every person is different and has different issues and strengths and capabilities and characteristics. But expectation can impact almost everything. Because of this, the approach of finding things wrong with kids and assigning them syndromes and then trying to treat those conditions, those syndromes, often only strengthens the challenges they're facing. Instead, if a kid has a problem with X, focus on dealing with X. Unless the condition is seriously debilitating, don't diagnose the kid and label them as having X, Y, and Z, because then they will also exhibit Y and Z. Treat every kid, your kid, as an individual, and expect them to overcome whatever obstacles they face, and if they do, expect them to overcome new obstacles. Constantly raise the bar of expectation, and you might just be surprised what they can achieve. Every kid is like a subatomic particle. Every person is. Resisting the urge to assess their core weaknesses might just mean that those weaknesses have less impact on their lives. This might seem insane, but I've seen it done. My own parents brought in many kids, and they changed their lives simply because my parents expected more from them than anybody else ever had. Of course, assessment can be important, but focus your assessments on their achievements, not on their underlying capabilities. 
I'll give one more economic example. The post-war finance minister of Hong Kong refused to collect GDP data. Why? Because the very active collection would lead to intervention that would be well-meaning and scientific, but counterproductive. As he put it, we suffer a great deal today from the bogus certainties and precisions of the pseudosciences, which include all the social sciences, including economics. He would intervene, but only in very specific areas, not for the economy as a whole. And it was under his stewardship that Hong Kong became a financial powerhouse. What does this have to do with Kobe Bryant and an oncoming plague? Quite a lot, actually. To begin with the obvious, Kobe was a fierce competitor who always expected more from himself, and he got more from himself. That was what set him apart. He was his own placebo. This can happen. People can break out beyond the expectations others have for them. And they can often be remarkable because they do so. But there's another level. See, the expectation game doesn't work with everything. It doesn't work with mechanics and nature and viruses. It doesn't work outside the human sphere. Nonetheless, expectation can be a powerful tool in combating the effects of all these areas. Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter accident. For all the problems helicopters have, fixed-wing commercial aircraft have almost no issues. The assumption is made that when U.S. commercial pilots screw up, it is due to a failure in training, in equipment, or in procedure, not due to incompetence or malice. There's a reason for this. In U.S. aerospace, pilots report near misses or minor incidents. They do so with an implicit understanding. They will not lose their jobs or suffer negative consequences so long as they did not act with malice. Nearly flying to another plane, you report it and what led to it, at least in the U.S. Why does this matter? Because pilots regularly report issues, and this enables the powers that be to analyze what process mistakes or shortcomings enabled those issues to arise. Through the process of analyzing problems, fixes, and procedures in equipment or in training can be brought to bear. It is a process of continual improvement. It doesn't work everywhere in aerospace, but in U.S. commercial flight operations, it is remarkably effective. There is an expectation that pilots mean well, and this leads to pilots who mean well, who will share their screw-ups in detail so as to avoid others suffering from the same mistakes. But this only works when training, procedures, and equipment can actually control a problem. It only works in those specific areas. However good your pilot may be, they can't actually make the equipment more reliable or the weather less challenging than it actually is. This is particularly important with helicopters. Helicopters can't coast, and they don't fly at the same high altitudes of commercial aircraft. So despite years of trying to cut the fatality rate, it has remained remarkably consistent. And bad weather and poor visibility, as Kobe Bryant's helicopter had, just reduced the band of safety even further. You can't say never, not when dealing with ultimately unpredictable failures. You can only mitigate them. The expectation that super pilots are supermen, able to defy the odds set by their conditions and equipments, leads to bad outcomes. In this case, thinking a little less of people can actually lead to better outcomes. All of this ties into the coronavirus. You see, the disease was first noticed in early December. Locking down Wuhan was very impressive, but the chances are the horse has already left the barn. Millions of people have left the city between the time of initial detection and when they shut the doors. If the disease can be transmitted during its dormant period of up to two weeks, then millions of people could have left undetected as carriers. If the disease is contagious when there are no symptoms, there's no way to get a leash on it now. One of the problems is we don't have good information. And the reason we lack that information is tied directly to the reason city authorities waited so long to intervene. It is basic. Mid-level governors in communist China don't pass bad news up the chain. Bad news indicates they aren't good at their jobs. It can get them canned or worse. Instead, like Richard Madoff, they try to paper over the bad stuff until it gets to be okay. 
Sometimes, as with Richard Madoff, this just makes things worse, a lot worse. To put it another way, a sign of good management is good outcomes, and so reported outcomes, no matter what the reality, are good. Every organization suffers from this. Sometimes bad information is passed out of greed, out of fear, out of ambition, but the effect is the same. Effective responses can't be launched in a timely manner. If these managers were a little bit more like American commercial airline pilots, things might have been different. They'd report even their failures without fear of backlash for the simple purpose of continually improving responses to problems. This doesn't work everywhere. There is no effective best practices handbook for raising children. We've tried, but the results have been pretty disastrous. It only works in areas where procedures, training, and equipment can effectively limit a problem. This can, of course, happen with specific issues somebody might be facing. Economies long-term also don't reliably respond to textbook interventions. The finance minister of Hong Kong would intervene, but he only did so in very limited areas where intervention could be demonstrated to work. Luckily, the propagation of disease is one of these areas. It is why the WHO has World Health Organization has standardized protocols and responses. They actually work. But if you miss the window of opportunity because mid-level managers in some random city are too worried about losing their jobs, then all bets are off. In China, the problem is even worse. If your internal reporting systems fail in a country with a free press, outsiders will step in. The free press will report on your mistakes, serving as a backstop against failure in government and society. This is why a free press, even if it sometimes it reports fake news, can be more important than free elections. But in China, the government punishes those who criticize it and erases their criticism. They actually arrested people who reported on the virus in its early days. The limits on criticism, even outside a formal framework, has led to a situation in which thousands of people are infected and we still know very little about the virus itself. The limits on critique breed disease and decay as surely as unlicensed meat markets. What would I do as president? Not much, actually. Our existing protocols are set up to deal with this as best they can. I wouldn't have any particular wisdom to add. My job would just be to recognize and applaud the efforts of people working within these protocols who exceed every reasonable expectation we might have of them. Folks, I'm sorry for the unfunny update. Hopefully next week I'll have better material to work with. Thank you. <laughs>